0: Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The School of Discipleship. Welcome to our series on Bible Interpretation, the reliability and usability of the Christian scriptures in our age. In this eight-part series, Reverend Preston Graham examines the veracity, objectivity, and applicability of scripture amongst the world's ever-changing approach to biblical interpretation. So uh, last week, if you were here, and I know it was a big rainy day, maybe a few of you weren't, but
1: I was kind of surprised how many of you did come, Um, was probably one of the more pivotal studies. So if you were not here, um, you'll want to make sure you review And Listen to that tape um, it dealt with the relationship of the old and the new and it dealt with how to read the Bible redemptive historically and covenantally, which uh, You know as I made the case last week uh, the Bible is at its core A covenant, I mean that's what it is and so (coughs) You know a covenant being that uh, manner in which God uh, comes down into our reality, forming a contract with us, starting at, at creation and the way that creation contract unfolds itself so that grace is attached to it. But in the midst of that, there are these geopolitical moments that are, and if you don't understand particularly the Mosaic Law, you remember, it was important to understand that that when you read uh, something like a proverb or a psalm under the Old Testament mosaic context, which was geopolitical. Um, you read it, and it's just, in, in fact, I'm going to do it today. If you come to the service uh, compline in chapter 91, I won't blow it, but you'll see in my little homily tonight, if you're coming, a great example of what we studied last week and how it is that you have to be careful to distinguish the covenant that a passage is in and what are the terms of that covenant are they temporal terms or are they not but eternal terms so that as you know under the mosaic covenant where's the promised land anybody where's the promised land in, under Moses Canaan. it's in Canaan where's the promised land under the uh, in when it's not under Moses as in from you know well anyway in the new testament particularly and where is that? Where? The church is certainly a mediatorial, ter- there's territorial on earth that's in the world, but not of the world, that's heavenly. You're right, where heaven meets earth. But ultimately, where is the consummated heaven? Where God is. Okay, that's, that's not fair. That's too, too Christian-y. Well, that's when it is, the w- world as we know it. Now, come on, be, I want you to be theologians here. I need there. Thank you. It's the whole earth. So under Old Testament, it's Canaan and 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 uh, heaven uh, consummated. It's the whole earth. Um, it's the dream of Eden finally realized, whereas they were to be fruitful and multiply. That is a great commission passage. Don't forget that in Eden. It's not go have a bunch of babies, though that's certainly part of it. Um, but it's truly about expanding the image of God into the... The whole cosmos. So, so anyway, that's that's the kind of stuff we talked about, least. I, I wanted to at least give you the opportunity. I think I mentioned it if you had a lingering question about this whole idea of understanding how to read your Bible through a covenantal lens or through a redemptive historical lens. Um, it, you know it, it it is a hard topic when you're not used to it. It's probably, you know, when Paul complained about the teachers of his day that were tickling ears, and he said they, they, when it comes to the law, which is, remember what we said? What is the law? When Paul talks about the law, what is he referring to? He's referring to what? What covenant? Nope. Mosaic. And then he'll, he'll contrast the Abrahamic with the Mosaic in Galatians, but not in a way that contrast, they are shown to be in sync, even if the Abraham is a non-temporal covenant and the Mosaic is a temporal covenant. Remember that? So that's where that goes. So make sure you go back and listen to it again, if it's still foggy, because I really think this, this is the kind of thing I would say most of the major mistakes I hear in pulpits is related to exactly what Paul said about the teachers that were the, 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 call them the bad teachers of his day. And that is that they, they speak of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) Those were his words. And, and that's really true today. Uh, it's, 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 it's really rare that, I mean, increasingly we don't have trained pastors now because their, their qualification is, is populism. But, um, but it's also true that less and less are, are, are studying the scripture in that way. And so, um, it's really an important class, and I hope you go back and look at it. Any questions, though, that just you, you now I've jogged your memory about? And if not, we're going to move into the day, which is also very important. So we can, we're learning how to Bible. We, we talked a lot about how not to. Now we're learning a lot how to. All right. Well, with that, we're going to look now um, at the Bible. Not only is it a covenantal uh, document, the nature of it is a covenantal document. It's a thing. I, I flipped just gonna have to do that and hopefully it doesn't fall um it's it's also a piece of literature now how do you feel about that i mean is there can anybody anticipate what could be a objection if i say to you let's read the bible like literature what comes to your mind maybe particularly if you've had something like that in college Anybody guess? What are you afraid of? Does that sound a little bit too worldly? Good. To That's right. So we're thinking now literary criticism. You're thinking about the sort of methodologies that you've used, but at the core you think of literature, you don't necessarily think of you know, history. It could be, but you don't think of, you think of sometimes fiction, novels, maybe poetry and other things, but um, but there's a sense in which it's human. And in fact, it is. Remember what we talked about uh, about three weeks ago? Uh, what is the nature of the Bible? When we talk about inspiration, what, what does that mean? Can you remember, remember that little pithy statement that, that we, we learned? What, is, what does it mean? What is the Bible? It is the you remember that and it has to do huh? The word? That's true. It's the Word of God. In the words of men. It is. There's a conf- Remember we talked about the confluence. We called it the confluence theory. Or not theory. The confluence. It's not by dictation. It's not that God usurped the personality. The language group. The genres uh, of language. He didn't usurp human language to give us language. That would have, that would have defiled the point, defied the point of what he's doing. The reason he did it this way is that it would come into our human flesh. The scripture is an act of incarnation. That's why, of course, Christ is what? The Word became flesh. Well, think about it, that's exactly what scripture is. The Word of God, which is an abstract God language thing, now comes to earth in the words of the flesh of the people that we can now study. So today we're going to, if last week we were talking about covenant, which was more the idea, you know, it's God and his, and it's the God side of this contract that came down from heaven and created this whole framework of our salvation that we call covenant theology. We are now thinking of the scripture in that second part in the words of of men. And I say men because... Again, I'm not sure where there certainly was prophetesses, so I, I guess we could say men and women in that regard. Um, but the point being is that uh, this is really significant, and I'm hope I'm hoping you're starting to begin to believe in all this. Like God it really does mean it. Really is important that we understand the nature of the Bible. That stuff that you wanted to put over there and say, "Oh, that's too abstract for me," because that's going to determine how we read it. And if it is the words of God, covenant and the words of men, human, and the words of human, then it's going to take on a human quality. And how do we study that? And so today in session five, it's called a literary approach and the basic methodology and in Bible interpretation summarized. So let's, uh, let's open in prayer, and that's where we're going. God, thank you for this time, and just so what a blessing it is just to have a day in the middle of the week where we touch base with each other, our family of God, and we thank you for that opportunity and the good food that you provided, and we pray now your spirit would be in this room and prepare us in our minds that we would be faithful. We know, Lord, that um, we are asking you to give us help in rightly dividing your scripture as you, your word commands us to do, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so let's get going here. Um, I I alluded to it, but our point being made, uh, when we say literature, we don't mean fiction. It's true that some equate literary approach with college classes entitled Bible as Literature, which are essentially a non-religious approach to studying the Bible. Um, This makes the Bible something less than it is, and we don't agree with that. That being said, um, the response here by Trimper Longman in his book, Literary Approaches to Bible Interpretation, which is if you really want to get into it, that's a very good book to read. Um, would someone just read that that quote first by Lewis and then Shrimper Longman? What else? So that's interesting. Um, we were just talking a minute ago. Stacy and I were just talking about Abraham and that passage where you know he seemingly portrays his wife, and uh, in order to protect his backside, you know, it, you know, and 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 my comment back to that was like, gosh, if this really is propaganda, you know, political propaganda, which so many people today in our own politicized world of. It even gets into the academia of of how we interpret the Bible. Um, You just wouldn't put that passage in there. (laughs) You know, it's that's a great example of like, I don't think I'd want to put that in there. But I'm trying to if 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 I'm trying to project Abraham as this great patriarchal figure, so that they'll have to then you know submit to me the great patriarch. I think I would probably just not want to put that little story in there because the as it turns out, he gets rebuked by the other side. (laughs) Remember. And um but that's that's what's so beautiful about scripture it's so real it 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 will not disguise think about how be, it will not disguise frustration it will not disguise struggle disbelief doubt lament sadness happiness anger it's all there and of course that's what literature does literature has a way of forming itself around these passions and emotions, whether it's through the use of poetry uh, to convey a passion, whether it's around the, the genre of history to convey well, a little history and a story, a, a, a novel, if you will. Um, th- this, it's a beautiful thing that the Bible is literature. And, it's, and, it, and it, it, it's a media through which God now speaks into the human spirit as a personal God, if the covenant is a very abstract, con, you know, sort of here are the stipulations of the law, and it's a very legal, forensic sort of a document, literature makes it incredibly human. And, and so you really want to love that. And so moving forward then, the human author's point is God's point. Again, would someone read this, uh, these two passages? Let's stop and think about that for a minute. So, what is our goal in interpreting the Bible now? You just stated it. Yeah, it's 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 original intent. Now we hear if you're you put that into our culture today, that is that is a taboo concept, particularly as it's related to constitutional law. You know, and and I'm not here to debate that. We've had uh, law students here. Any of you guys, law students, but. And, and I've engaged them about that debate, you know, the boor, back in the old days, the Bork and the... You know, keep in mind that as a Christian, you're, you're not unorthodox if you want to believe that it's not a, a, a original intent or it is. Why? Because we don't think the Constitution is a, a non-temporal document. We, at the end of the day, believe it is temporal. Now, again, I'm not taking a position on it. But if you're sitting in there listening to the words original intent and your back is going up, don't, because what we are talking about now is a divine supernatural process, which therefore, if it's going to be objective and not subjective, remember what we talked about two weeks ago and, that, and the trajectory hermeneutic and the new hermeneutic and the way in which it just takes it right off the, the, the rever- reservation into our own subjectivity. This is another way of defending the objectivity of scripture. And the reason that's important is what? What would you lose if you lose objectivity? I'm getting your thinking here, but let's see if anybody can jump on that. What would you lose? What's what really is all this about? Bible interpretation. What are we trying to preserve? The existence of a true meaning. A true meaning? And if you don't have a true meaning, what have you lost in your relationship with God? His voice? Yep the ability to know him in a, in a definitive way, in a real way. Yep. And ultimately it's the Lordship. Everything. I keep bringing it back to that every week. I think I have brought it back to this. I hope it's starting to sink in. It does not surprise me that the original sin of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is repeated in the history of hermeneutics or Bible interpretation. Any theory that can take this off the objective reservation gets you to, and everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. It's absolutely crucial. These are not just ethereal, abstract, non-relevant. I mean, it kills me when I hear people, oh, that stuff's not really relevant to my life. Really? You're talking about the very heart and soul of our religion here. Do we believe in a God who is who exists, who is revelatory, who does communicate, and he communicates in a means by which we can objectively discern what it is that Christ is, or God is communicating as a thus saith the Lord. If you take out that thus saith the Lord, one that you could say, well show me Preston, because I'm not supposed to say it until I can show it to you that God spoke it, not me then you've lost the lordship of Christ. You're back to the Garden of Eden, and you just failed on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We just went spiral right back into the the beginning. That's why these things are so important. I'm going to say it again, because it's just really in my heart. But you that are of the millennial and younger, I'm telling you, I really believe this. I don't mean to sound prophetic and all, but I don't think you can imagine the world you're going to be growing up in and your kids. I just see it coming from afar. I mean, what we see happening in California and, 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 you know, motions that are going to take tax exempt status away from the churches that don't have certain views. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's going, it's going that way and it's going to be really hard to own a building like this. I mean, really, if that were to happen, we might have to leave the building. It's that kind of stuff. And it's not gonna be easy to be a Christian. And people are gonna, you hear it all the time, well, that theology is not important. This stuff about Hermer, humor, what? Uh, come on, you know. Well, underneath it is a really big deal. It's that lordship. And if you don't understand what's happening and you don't have this, yeah, of course, I've, I've worked it out with scripture. The scripture is the word of God and the words of, of, of human. Therefore, there's a divine element that, that, that is con- covenantal, that transcends time and space. And then there's this human element. But what it means is we have to believe that God in his supernatural power, in some ways I think it would have been easier for God just to dictate it. I mean, it, that would have been easier. I mean, it's a lot harder to prepare the history of an author and to prepare a language group to be the perfect language group to speak through to prepare the personality of an author. All of that stuff that makes literature literature that's human. And yet God decreed this human being with these circumstances to bring us the word that we could study it objectively in his own context. But the key word here is original intent, which is very taboo. It says taboo in... In Christian theology now, it's not taboo in Orthodox traditions, it never was. This is old stuff. But it is as taboo now in the world of hermeneutics, in, in the modernist, postmodernist sense, as it is in constitutional law. And that's what we're dealing with here. So, read the next one, somebody. Apart from modern demands of documentation, are due to his heavenly inspiration, not his purely fictitious inventiveness.
0: Nevertheless, the inspired author probably exercises authorial right to represent what a character of the story, including God, said in his own terms, while being
1: faithful to the historical reality. Do you see the confluence there? Everybody knows what confluence is, right? You know, two things coming together basically is the best way to say it simply. The God-human confluence. And so notice what's, what, what he's saying there. It's that we, we it's, it sounds pretty striking, doesn't it? The God is, in the, the, the words that come from this author's mouth are omniscient. Why? Because God anointed him as a prophet. That's a bigger miracle to me than dictating out of the sky. <laughs> but he did. He can. He's the creator God. It goes back. Do you believe in God? Do you believe out of nothing God can make anything? That he can speak with one syllable word in Hebrew and it becomes a reality (laughs) in tangible time and space? Well, if you can believe that, which is ridiculous, (laughs) then you can believe that God could anoint a person to speak forth or write forth the word of God. But it's a miracle. We're asking you to believe in a miracle here. It's not a human thing. And if you can't believe in miracles, you can't believe this. Which is why I keep going back to the Enlightenment and how big a deal that was that said there is no miracle. And you live and breathe in a world where that is is the norm of consciousness and unconscious thought. We really don't believe in that but we're having to relocate it in our heart and say, do I believe this? So that's what's going on. That's what inspiration is, this miracle of God, a confluence of God's mind with the mind of an author and and the author's own flesh of humanity and genre and language group and ways of putting words together and all of that stuff, and that becomes for us the Word of God. But the only way then we can study it To get to the objectivity of Christ's lordship is to study according to original intent. Any questions about what we've said so far? This is Apologetics 102. Seriously, any thoughts, questions? I'm trying to reconcile uh, your statements from earlier about it's not the human author that was inspired. That's right. Good, good. But it comes through the flesh of a human. I mean, I so that means word groups, like language groups, stuff like that. Right. Now, how God mixes yeah. all of that together. Um, a miracle. Well, okay. Really? Yeah, but, uh, it's, it's the miracle of Christology, isn't it? Well, ultimately, we won't be able to get our heads around it, but we yeah. we explain it the way we explain Christology. Okay. Okay. My understanding of a miracle is something that is against God's laws of nature. Uh, well, transcends okay. them. I'd say it better, but yeah, at the yeah. Sun. yeah, 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 uh, right. In, in that and and I would say this is less that kind of miracle, although maybe it is, but it's more the miracle of providence. Now I know that you don't usually call providence miracle but providence is just as powerful as a miracle i feel i feel like we always and i'm not saying you do this but i do think if i were to ask you what's a bigger deal a miracle or providence i think most people say miracle and it really isn't providence to me is just as big a deal yeah. to line up a, a million stars in a hundred million years of history so that it all comes to to bear on the day that jesus was born with a star over the skies i mean there's just a lot of miracle there but it was, a pro- it was not necessarily usurping nature to get us there. And so, um, so I, I think the, really the only way I know to say this is going back to what I said at the very beginning that the word of God is an act of incarnation. It is that big of a deal. And so yes, I can, ex- I can describe the Christology and the way that we've done in the ecumenical creeds, but at the end of the day, it's, it's blowing my mind that there's a confluence of divine and human nature in the person of Christ. Same thing with these words. Okay? Good question. Yeah. I so yeah, I when Right. I'm not faith, I'm moral. That's so
0: right.
1: Yes, yes, and to some degree, the the, 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 the the argument of the Catholic Church is at least a proper one, they just take it too far, and that we don't believe in apostolic succession in the same manner that they do. We do believe in it, it's the succession of the ministry, but our ministry is, is now to explicate the foundational words of the apostles, and we get that from Ephesians 2, and so that's a very important distinction between us and the Catholics, therefore that difference it's not a continuing revelation but yeah good question okay let's let's oops i went dead did I what happened to me there we go um so so here we're going to keep this um this is a kind of heavy i'm not sure i want to do this but but let me just read the first part i'm going to kind of go through it um this is bb warfield 19th century uh there's a great debate about inspiration this is when classic liberalism was at in, sort of in it's heyday we're really post liberal now And so, this is the this is the years of classical academic, you know, theological liberalism, and they're dealing with the scripture. And here, and BB Warfield wrote a great book on the inspiration of Scripture, and it's still a a read in seminaries. Uh, But he's describing this, explaining this the way I just did. But here is his words about it. He says, "And there is the preparation of the men to write these books to be considered a preparation, physical, intellectual, spiritual." which must have attended there throughout their whole lives, and indeed must have in its beginning in their remote ancestors, and the effect of which was to bring the right men to the right places at the right times with the right endowments, impulses, acquirements, to write just the books which were designed for them. That's what you're really saying here when you talk about the inspiration of Scripture. Now, I'm going to skip over some of this. You can go back and read it. Um, He goes through the the, sort of the the things Um, And so that's going to lead us now to I want to get practical with you for you So we've done our little apologetics course. Let's start doing interpretation So now we're going to take some of these. Maybe you've heard them. Maybe you haven't but in the world of literary analysis There's going to be taught things like form criticism, you know literary criticism, etc. And by criticism I would, I would rather put the word analysis. Uh, you know, it's, it's a better, I'm using the word, criticism's fine, but I think in, in the true sense, we mean analysis. So what is form criticism? Form criticism focuses on the period that was oral. Remember, the scripture comes to us, but they relied on sources. So form criticism, and then there's going to be the next one, I think, called source criticism that's oral sources and literary sources. So, for instance, we know that Moses had access. If we believe Moses wrote the scripture, which I think are or, or the, the laws, which we, we do, I do, at least good parts of them, not all of them. And others, it could be pseudonym Moses, which I'll explain later. But if we believe that, we but we'll read the scripture, for instance, Genesis, and we'll clearly see... Ancient Canaanite um literature in it. The Gil- Gilgamesh epic, for instance. And we're gonna and, and you're gonna say, oh no, it's not the word of God now. Why why is that? I mean, when I write a when I write a book, um, you know, I, I got sources. And I'm going back to those sources and some of its oral tradition. I went when I wrote my book on Robinson, I went back to Louisville and started talking to to. Great grandparents and sons, and looked at, at scrapbooks that they had in their basement. And I had what I had was form or oral tradition, and I had literary tradition. And that's what happens in the Bible. Don't be surprised with that, but it helps you. But it's going to all be brought together, like we just saw, in a way that brings us the Word of God. So form criticism is the attempt to establish the source a biblical author used to construct a narrative. Why do some stories of the Bible seem to be alternative versions or borrowed versions of myths and stories from other cultures? Does Genesis borrow from the Mesopotamian myth uh, Enuma e- Elish? Is Noah's flood an adaptation of the Babylonian epic of Gilgamesh? We're going to say, well, why not? Why would that trouble me? Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the biblical authors stripped the ancient pagan literature of their mythological elements, infused them with the, uh, the sublimities of their God, and therefore used them to refute the pagan myths by identifying the Holy Lord as the true creator and ruler of the cosmos and of history. Bruce Walkie, an Old Testament professor. Um, this is really important. If you are start, you'll hear this. If, has anybody heard this stuff? The Bible really is not the Bible. I mean, look, this is the Gilgamesh. Anybody heard of the Gilgamesh epic? That's a fairly popular, you know, thing. And it's used often to say, see, it's not God's word. And we're going to say, well, yeah, it is. It's a brilliant apologetic tactic. You start to read it, Genesis, and you start to identify. These are Gilgamesh themes. And yet he turns them on his head. The Gilgamesh epic will present, with you, present you with a dualism. There's these great immortal forces coming together and we're stuck with a dualism. Two deities fighting it out. And Moses turns that right on its head. Through the Genesis account, there are all these days. They're coming back and forth. You got these days, these days, these lords, these lords. All of a sudden there's one lord. And he's king of kings and lord of lords. Totally undoes the myths of the Mesopotamians. And so that's the idea, see. In the end, it is the canonical text. By canonical, that means a rule of faith or a rule. It's, the, it's that text which has been passed down through the ages of the church that is the inspired word of God, however it gets to there. That's the point he's making here, is the authoritative not the process, not the self-understanding of the interpreter. Brevard Charles, a professor here at, at Yale. And so that goes back to the uh, source criticism, which I just read. Um, I must have just skipped over the form. Did I? It kind of popped off. Um, so how would we respond to this? Well, look at, look at Luke. He, he tells you that's what he's going to do. And as much as many have undertaken to complete, to compile, notice that word, a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have uh, certainty among the things you have been taught. What is he telling you right there? His method. I went back and, and, and got oral tradition, and I went back and saw other writings about in and, and documents by those who are eyewitnesses of Christ, and I compiled them together, and I put the story together for you. That's a human endeavor, isn't it? Sounds very human to me. But then it is going to be read and interpreted as the Word of God within the Scripture itself, with the authorities of God himself which is why that battle about apostolic authority was such a big deal. Sometimes you wonder, Paul seems to be self-promoting a lot. He's not. What he's trying to do is make a case that there's, there, that there's got to be an authoritative source that we can study and read that trumps all the hearsay that's out there. And that's why he's supporting his apostolic authority. It's not because he's got a big head. He's concerned to regulate all the sources that are spinning around, even in the first century? Which ones are good? Which ones are bad? And there are two also criticism yep. Yeah. Okay. So we've read that. So that gets us to the issue of genre. Now, I think many of you, most of you would understand what we're talking about here. Um, that is to say that, that, that when God writes scripture, we're going to expect it now, in these human sort of ways, and so of course, there are these categories or types of literature that you're going to find in the scripture, and of course, you're going to want to then respect those types in the way in which you read them. I mean, the one that would be most obvious is, is apocalyptic literature. If you don't believe in a literary genre, one that would have been used like it is today. I mean, what is apocalyptic? Can you think of a non-biblical apocalyptic style genre in literature? Science fiction. Science fiction. Good. Can you think of one that's Christian that we all like to read? I'm thinking of the C.S. Lewis's trilogy, the space trilogy. What is, he, what is that called again? Space Trilogy, it is, you're right. It's the, but there's another, there, what's this? A pro- yeah, Paralandra, that's it. I, I think of that, for instance. That comes to my mind first. you know. And, and if, you don't, if, if you don't pretty quickly identify that's what it is, you're going to end up with a bunch of charts just like some people do with the, the Revelation story. <laughs> you know, they're trying to trace all this stuff. And, no, you're missing the point. And that's exactly what happens if you don't understand apocalyptic genre. The way in which words and images become symbols. Symbols that are rooted in a history of those words and those numbers. That have a, a real historicity to them, so you can determine what they mean, but at the same time are symbolic. Um, you know, that's so important, um, isn't it? You see that, right? Or a, or, or a narrative. It's a story. So what, what, what are you going to, some of you that are more English-minded, you know, people who've had literature or whatever, if you're reading history, just what first comes to mind, how are you going to read it? Okay, there's a little bit of a chronology there, perhaps, although you got to look to see. Some histories are not written chronologically. But what are you going to look for? Think words like what? Plots and, or... Antagonist, protagonist, uh, events. There's we're looking for a story of some sort. There's something. There's a history here, but it's telling me something. It's it's not just list of historical events. It's being edited in a manner to say something. You know. Um. You know. When you write a history, you know, you're you're very carefully. When I I just I'm gonna be interviewing a blog. A guy's a blog wants me to be interviewed because of. The book that I wrote tomorrow, and you know, and I've been re- I've been studying going back. it's been twenty years since I wrote, so I had to go back and look at it and try to remember what I wrote, but but the point is is it's you know, I was reminded of how I put constructed the book, each chapter going through a particular history, but it was all with a point in view. It wasn't just, let me just tell you what happened. And so, of course, histories have a narrative and have a a point, and you're looking for that, or epistolatory, a letter. What are you going to do there? Someone's writing a letter and you want to understand it. What's probably one of the first things you're going to want to know? Who wrote it it would be a good start. (laughs) Who did he write it to? And why? What was the purpose of this letter? How did it get used? Um, Wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? Well, you're going to have to study the scripture a little bit more and we'll get to it. But it's a brilliant genre. You think of Ecclesiastes, which Jeff is preaching on now. We love wisdom. But what, what is wisdom ultimately? It's taking that which is a rule and turning it into stupid or smart, to put it bluntly. In other words, if you read a covenant and you read, it reads like a legal document, forensic we call it, When you read wisdom, you're still talking about the will and and the law of God, but it's no longer coming to me like a law. It's coming to me like great counsel, as in now what we would call sin, which makes me feel guilty, in wisdom genre becomes what? What's the corollary of sin in wisdom literature? What? Folly. Folly. Good. Foolishness? Good. Stupid. Stupid. So I read it in and you know I read it in, in Exodus in the covenantal framework of the covenant, and oh man, I'm transgressing a law to do this. I read it in the Proverbs, I'm stupid to do this. Which I love it for that. Because it's getting to that idea that, you know, it is wise, you know, to be godly, if you will. And off we go parable you know the difference between a parable and an allegory you better that's where most people make mistakes in the in the parables good a parable is is, is is there's one point it's a story it's a it is a story that has a single point there's a moral to the story if you will allegory yeah, it's, it's, there's a one-to-one correlation between the parts. Oh, how many horrifying interpretations of the Bible have fallen to that. It's even got a great history. Unfortunately, Augustine was prone to it, although he was a great theologian. Not always, though, but that was common in that day. But the, the point being is that, that yeah, that's huge. Because if you're reading the story of the rich young ruler and you're put, pulling apart, well, you know, the, the blank represents blank and the blank represents blank. Well, what is, what's just happened again? What, is our, what are we trying to prevent from happening? Subjectivity. We're trying to keep it objective, right? Now I'm inserting my subjectivity into this book and I can make it turn into anything I want to turn it into. You see? Off we go. So we're going to be talking about genre. And um, and for the next two next week and the week after this, we're gonna uh, we're gonna do Old Testament. We're gonna focus on several of the Old Testament genres, and the next week we'll do New Testament genres, and then the next week we're gonna talk about how do you go from the Scripture to leading a small group Bible study. How do you go from the Scripture and discerning God's wisdom in your life, and how do you go from Scripture? And the manner in which it should govern the life of the church, though to be the final. So those are our three lessons next. But what I wanted to do in cl- kind of closing here, what time do we got? I can't see that clock. Oh, good. We're doing pretty good. Um, I'm going to walk you through a summary now. I'm kind of. This is where I put it all together for you. So okay, you've been introduced to all these themes and concepts about scripture. Um, now let's. This is what I'm going to call the. I don't know how many steps there are. The, I guess it'd be great if I could call it the seven steps. Maybe it's the ten steps. It's definitely not the three steps. But it's it's going to be a holy number, I bet. I don't know. Um, it's not apocalyptic Bible study we're having here, is it? But these are the quote steps of how to interpret Scripture. Now I want to be careful. These are not steps that that. Um, it, it's not a science. I mean i I you know, I was a science major, and I remember you'd have these flow charts and you go in the lab and you follow your flow chart. I should be talking to someone like you but and I can remember following my little flow chart, and out comes the little crystal that I'm trying to create, you know in this little bubbly mass that I've done and I wished interpretation were that simple, not that that is simple it's it's a it's it, it is an art because as you learn scripture, you become a better scripture interpreter. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind when I teach seminary classes and we talk about homiletics, um, I strongly urge pastors to preach through books of the Bible rather than topically. And there's a lot of reasons I would, I have a whole lot of reasons why for the sake of the you and all that. But one of my reasons is you do that for 30 years, you are not going to believe how you begin to just intuitively understand scripture. Because you are working yourself methodically through all of this literature, all of these covenantal contexts, and like a good doctor who's seen Lyme disease 100,000 times, you begin to detect it like that. I'm so sad in my heart that the, 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 the ordained ministry has become almost laughable because we all know you can go online and be ordained now and do a wedding. There was a day when you would go to a pastor and you truly would expect that kind of knowledge of Scripture, where you would really expect that this is someone who every week of his mortal life has been studying Scripture Practically. And it's not that he's superhuman, it's not that he's that smart, it's not anything, but it's just exactly what you would learn to expect. You're a podiatrist, is that right? Is that, yeah. I guess you've seen how many feet? Thousands of feet. What a job. <laughs> um, but I can't imagine how you know, certain things that, that this new podiatrist would look at, and have to go to the book and look at it and do this and do this to try to diagnose it. My guess after thousands of feet and by the time you're 50 years old, you've seen now millions of feet. And you're just going to know what, what whatever disease is, is when you see it. You're just going to know it when you see it. I want to encourage you. You can start this right now. While I know you won't be spending the time in the original, while I know you won't be doing something, but if you start a habit of just walking slowly through books of the Bible, even in your devotional life, one book at a time, one book at a time, and and walking, and and not you're not going to be able to do this thing, okay? We're, I mean, the, a lot of these steps are things that you're just going to understand is what needs to be done, and hopefully you're looking to a, a helper, as in a commentary uh, to help you through it. But you could get a decent commentary that's not too academic and start working through the Bible and just think of that like investment. Think about it like an investment. You know, everybody says start your retirement early. By the time you are 65 years old, and you've been investing since 28, whatever, You know, and it didn't seem like a lot at the time, but it's going to be the rest of your life worth of money. And every year it gets better, and it multiplies faster. I'm telling you that is about the most perfect analogy that I can give to how it feels to be in the Scripture every week. It just starts, it's easier and easier. People used to ask me, people haven't asked me this in a while, I don't know why but people used to always ask me, how long does it take you to prepare a sermon? I can remember coming right out of seminary, oh, at least 15 hours. I mean, I'm having to do this work first time. You know, I've done it in seminary, but go back, read the Greek, you know, go back, go through, I had this little strategy, do this on Monday, do this on Tuesday, do this on Wednesday. And you'd go through that. And, and now it's, it's, uh, you know, depending on the sermon. And again, I, I do spend, you know, sometimes that much, but but now it's, I could easily do what used to take me 15 hours probably in six or seven because, oh, I've seen this before. I know what this is going to say or how this is going to say it. So I want you to be encouraged that what this is is not a science. It's an art. It's, it's a method that you want in your head as to these are the sorts of things I should be looking for. You'll see over time at certain passages, certain things will be more important than others. So you might skip a step here on some of the stuff, as you'll see. I just want you to hold on to what I'm about to give you with kind of uh, soft hands, not grip it in a, in a rigid way. Does that make sense? So I just prepped you. So step one, what have we said about, let start, it's almost like a review of our course. First thing we said is we made a distinction between what? Revelation and illumination. So the first thing you want to do is pray for illumination. And what that should do for you is what? God, I need to be a receptive vessel to what I'm about to study. I need to ask you to kind of wipe the slate blank as to what I'm going to bring to this text. Let me be the listener. Let me come into this with a truly open mind. Let the text take me where it's going to take me. And, and creating me a clean heart that I might want to hear it even when... My flesh doesn't want me to hear it. It's just prayer, and I, I really this is step one, and you really need to do it. it. It really is a liturgy of interpretation that just gives you a different mindset when you do it. So I would encourage you to do that. It's it's the answer to what Paul was praying that he would give us the uh, you know that our eyes of our hearts. Notice that the eyes, not of my flesh, the eyes of my heart, that means affections, loves, that that would, 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 would be enlightened. Any questions about step one? Step two. So we got a problem. Um, You're, you're probably not able to read the Greek and Hebrew and in some cases Aramaic. And, um, and so you don't have the word of God. You have a translation, but different translations are have different uh, uh, methodologies. Some are going to be much more interpretive, some are going to be much less interpretive, wooden like the NAS, the New American Standard is probably the most wooden interpretation I know. It's, it's going to follow the order of the Greek or Hebrew a little bit closer, it's going to be, it's going to take it less, it's going to have less license to kind of interpret it into your vernacular. But that doesn't mean it's a better translation. Quite, a, quite the contrary, it could be a worse translation. Uh, because it leaves it so vague, you don't know how to say it, or it might not do the work of really asking the question, how would this Greek word really translate, not to even a 19th century English person, how does this Greek word translate into a 21st century English speaking person? So what you have is these different translations reflecting different translation theories. Literal, dynamic, free. New Living Bible, free. Uh, the... the uh, NIV, New International Vi- uh, Version, is more dynamic. Uh, the NAS, New American Standard, is more literal. Wooden, I don't say literal, wooden. And so it's good to have those two. The other thing is there's two major sources for your, for your text, if you're talking about particularly the New Testament. you got one Masoretic text, which is it, it's the oldest complete Hebrew Bible that we have. But then we have older parsnips and partials and things like that bunches of them so there's another version the is the one we have that is the is an eclectic compilation of all the and it's and the text you have is compiling i wish i brought my little my new testament bible with me but you could see it on the bottom they will literally have a number telling you where are all these uh parchments and, and pieces of the text and where can you find them in a museum somewhere? There's several of them. I taught this course a long time ago and I took you over to the Yale um, uh, library and we pulled some of them out and let you actually see them. Some of them in my, my New Testament r- Bible is referenced and oh, lo and behold they're right here. And so, so what, what am I saying? Don't let this overwhelm you, though. Okay? What I just did was oh my God, I'm never going to be able to do anything. No, it's not that hard. I would encourage you to have at least a, a you know one fairly not literal but 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 more rigid so maybe you have something like the NAS and then maybe you have something like the the English standard version which is more of the uh dynamic and I would just get rid of the free <laughs> I mean it's way too license it, it really can And and I'm going to explain why. So let me give you an example, and this is what, here's how you would use it, though. Here's how you'd use these two texts. The more, what do you think's going to happen the more dynamic or free of translation gets? What do you think's going to happen? No, not necessarily. It actually could, it could actually make it more meaning. Remember, it depends on how good translation it is. Well, no, I would say it's hopefully, all of these texts wants to get you to the original meaning. Okay, you need to know that. So that, that's, these are, I'm really glad you're all saying this stuff, because that's, that's a very good question. No, see, think about it. Translation's your friend. I mean, if you really want to be wooden and literal, just, just put the Greek on the page for you. No, you're looking at people who are linguistic specialists, presumably, who know original languages, who've studied it, and they're trying to understand this word, the semantic range, you know, words have a, what we call a use, you know, range you know, she's sick does not mean necessarily that she's puking. <laughs> it means maybe she's hot as, but no, it doesn't mean that she's got a fever. She's just hot. No, it doesn't mean that she's got a fever. It means that she's, you see where this is going? It's a semantic range. And and, and that, d- that happens as fast as a generation. So in some ways, the more dynamic translation is going to try to keep up a little bit more with the semantic range of a word. And it can be a good thing. But what would be a bad thing is that in the attempt to translate more, you might lose some of the semantic patterns and and repetitions that are in your scripture and would point you to something that's a very important point for the original intent. So let me give you an example. Um, do you have so so? Uh, these are questions. Let me see where I want to go here. The next one, I think. So take this idea here. Here's an. Ex- I'm going to illustrate my point. R- look at the word boast. Shows up in chapter two. You see him. Boasting is not a good thing. Throughout this thing. And now all of a sudden, because it's a, a bad thing, I believe this is the NIV. Did I put it in here? I thought I did somewhere. I didn't tell you what it was. I think that's the NIV. Or maybe it's the ESV. All of a sudden, look at where the word changes to the word what? Rejoice. Now, boast, 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 boast is all the interpreters thinking these are negative context. You shouldn't be boasting. Because all the, they're used in the context of Romans to talk about what? Self-righteousness, self-reliance. All of a sudden, you come to five, and the translator goes, God, this word now is used a little differently. Well, the word boast in semantic ranging does include things like confidence, things like glory in, things like rejoice in. So the translator, in a dynamic way, trying to make it good for you, the reader in English, says, "I I can't put boast here they're going to miss the whole point. He's not saying it's bad to 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 do something with suffering. He's making a really contrary point. And so you'd miss it. And if you missed it, and you've been and you've been studying through the book of Romans now, remember doing book studies, And you've been seeing this word boast, 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 boast. If you saw it here and you've been kind of getting comfortable with this word, it would be an aha moment for you because the whole thesis of Paul is now coming to its climax. Don't boast, don't boast, don't boast, don't boast, don't boast. Boast. And I'm going as an interpreter, man, I just unlocked the the meaning of Paul's uh, Roman study. It was the key that unlocks it for him to see that he's forming a contrast and how that contrast changes everything. Even the way we deal with suffering. When we boast in Christ, when we put our confidence and sufficiency in Christ, it's a huge point, but you would have missed it entirely. And I'm saying on the one hand, he's, or the translator, he or she, is right. They're trying to say, no, if if the connotation of boasting so far has been negative, I don't want you to see this passage as negative. He or she is trying to not make you go, I'm not supposed to do this. I'm supposed to now do it. But he's afraid if he puts boast in there, then you're thinking you're not supposed to do it because it's always been bad. But he actually obscures the point because the point, the word here is chalcometha. And it's the same word that you've been seeing nonstop. Chalcometha, chalcometha, chalcometha. And you slowed down to notice that, and you see it. And so now, look what he's saying. How would this change? You know, the, the grammatical decisions, such that, the, and there, there's other things like that. So, for instance, there's you know the there's different uh, uh, you know grammatical cases, right? Take the genitive. In your English, a genitive. In in the in the Greek, the genitive is a is a is a uh, Postscript. It's, it's just a little, you know, a, a couple of letters at the end of a word. But it's the same word. In your English, it's usually a second word. Or even more than that. Through, in, with, of. All of those words can translate a genitive form or, or case. And so that's another example where you're using different translations. And all of a sudden it's of... Maybe genitive of possession. So i give you an example of this. You, you have the attributive genitive. And i give you examples. All of these, if you were to look at the way the word is, is, is written in the Greek, you would know it's a genitive. But now you've got to make an interpretive decision about a genitive of what? Is it an attributive a, a genitive? Judge, ooh, good gracious, this really turned out. Um... I have no clue what I just wrote there. Judge of unrighteousness. Yeah. Um, is it a possessive genitive? You know that one, right? It's the, it's the possession of Sally. You'd have an of there. And off you go. I won't go through it. All I'm saying is don't get mired in all the details here. Don't do that, okay? Please don't go anal on me here. Just it, It's making a case. Get a couple of translations that are going after these and get them that, that have these different theories and you'll see, wow, for some reason these guys had a very different, say, preposition attached to this wor- word. And one is through, one is of, one is, is in, you know, whatever, which means, okay, I want to slow down here a little bit and figure out what do I see happening here because it alerted me to that. Now, I, I, I'm really... Nervous about showing you this stuff because I don't want to exasperate you all of a sudden now every time I have a devotion It's gonna take me five hours And you don't have devotions anymore, so don't do that Just kind of be a little more alert, you know, and and see what happens But if you're doing a if you're really studying a passage because you plan to teach it Again, I'm not trying you're not going to be qualified ever to write your own curriculum in this church But you are going to be more qualified as a teacher because of this class to use the tools of things like Bible dictionaries and Bible commentaries and you're going to be a little more able to use those tools and say, ah, I know what's going on here. Yeah.
0: So how often is this really necessary
1: to compare versions? It's a good question. I mean, you've given some great examples, but are those the exceptions right No, it's pretty, it's relatively common, but it's not going to be point-changing, normally. It, 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 remember, I'm going to take the assumption that most of your translations are going to get you to the main point. Even if you might miss a few of the nuances. Which is okay. Which is why I want you to be less ambitious when you teach, and not more ambitious. And you, what do you think I mean by that? I mean, how would you feel if I tried to do a little bit of a, a podiatric... Is that, I don't even know how to say the word. But, If I were to try to be a kind of lay doctor, like every mom is, well, you'd probably say, you know, don't be too ambitious here. You know, there's a little diagnosis that you can do, but but don't go too far with this, because you could do a lot of harm. That's what I see happen in this little everybody up priest evangelicalism. Going into the scriptures they got a single text it's English they're doing this inductive Bible study, and oh boy, i'm going to really get down to some deep stuff here that's where a lot of the mess starts happening. so I would just say in some ways this is going to hope I hope this course is going to kind of open up your eyes a little bit. I hope you're going to be able to enjoy your scripture more because you see there's a lot more going on here than I thought maybe it's going to make you more alert but Generally, whether you're reason NAS or, or NIV or ESV or forget the Living Bibles, um, then you're going to pretty much be brought to the to the point, I think, and you don't have to work that hard. But if you're starting to get, hey, I really have a question about that. I wonder what's going on. And if you want to try to go a little uh, one level deeper, it's great. Now, if you're going to a church, and I say this not because you're here, but if you go out to this church and go find another, I hope you find a guy that's really working the system. Because this is the person who's guarding the faith in your church, who's going to guard against heresies, who's going to guard against the wolves that come in with all these little interpretive twists and turns that are going on out there. And your kids are going to grow up with all that. And so that's where it's important to have somebody around you that's doing it, you know, if you can. So, but, and you'll be able to be more conversant with it. Does that answer your question? I never fully do. I know that <laughs> oh, I love Fred yeah, there's some Parabell Bibles that's right, yeah, again, I would just take a little less emphasis on the living they 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 try to make it too popular, I think, um and it just kind of obscures a lot of stuff, makes too much license. Okay, so so basically, we've talked about um, first step is pray. Second step is read your text a couple of times in different translations, making some marks where you see a few differences. That's basically method number two. Part three is now you want to do a book review. That's very important. Get you a good uh, Bible handbook or, or like I put a couple of here, survey books, introduction books. Go, you can do them online. Um, I put you just one of each that are pretty good, but, but basically that's where you're going to go and say, okay, who wrote this book? What were the historical circumstances? You know, what was the occasion for the writing of the book? What are the major themes in this book? What, you know, that's, what's going to give you this sort of, it's going to bring the context in for you. And again, don't get too detailed. I'm speaking to some of you who learned that you you, you, the way you take good SAT exams is you get really detailed. You know, you're looking for big themes. You're looking for big patterns. You know, don't, don't let your, don't exhaust yourself. But if you know you're about to study a book for the next year and your devotions, get, get you a couple of translations every once in a while, you know, just read them comparatively a little bit. It's like a little meditative exercise. Read the, you know, get, get in the very beginning, get you a little uh, introduction to, the, to that book and get the context so you kind of know what you're looking for and what themes are there and you'll start to see those themes. Now, you could have, if you were taking Next to exegesis class under Scott Haefman like I did, he would make you almost do your own book study and, man, it would took a m- month. Or you can go to somebody who did it for you and that's what you should do. Okay. So that's the kind of obvious, who wrote the book, what were the historical circumstances, what is the general theological themes, look for key words, often repeated, you know, um, are there, is there a technical use of the word, you know, righteousness, obviously, for Paul is a very technical term, so you really want to try to figure out in a word study, which we'll talk about next. So that's three. Four is, now you're going to be surprised by this, but define your passage. What time is it? I see somebody walking in. Oh, is it 20 of All right, I got five minutes. So define your passage. You may think that's, what? That's not, what do we mean? Well, what is the fundamental unit of all language? It's not a word. It's not even a sentence. It's a, we call it a pericope, a big word for a paragraph, or it's a self-contained unit of, of, of literature. Sometimes a narrative, it might be a whole book. I mean, a chapter, two, three, four. Sometimes it might be a sentence like Proverbs, but it's this, and you're trying to, why do you do that, do you think? Because you don't want to stop in the middle of it, and you hadn't got to the, to the point, and then you're going to insert a, an artificial point. You're, you're going to miss the argument. Happens a lot, especially in narratives. So summarize your passage. This kind of talks a little bit how to do that. And then you're going to start, um, and I define this, I I, I kind of go through this, Um, I'm not going to do it now, but this is a great example. If you were to read Ephesians 1 and uh, verse 15 and just stop, you could stop at verse 10, but you definitely need to know that you're at part one of a part two passage. Because you're going to see that it's not over. The work of Christ's salvation is not over, and that's his point. His first point is to talk about all the great advantages of the incarnational ministry of Christ. And then he's going to talk to these Christians and say, and you've got all this stuff, Christians, but your salvation is not over. You're only half saved. What? And that's what he's, oh, for this reason, I'm praying for you. There's more to come. And where are you going to find that? In the church. And that's his argument. The church is an essential element of the gospel too. You want the head, you're going to have to have the body. And it's the whole point. Modern Christians have missed that point. They don't see the church as part of their salvation and the things that happen in the life through the means of grace of the ascension. And you're, he's really dealing with the ascension ministry of Christ now, from the incarnation to the ascension. So define your passage. Um, discern immediate context. You can read through this pretty basic. You know, what's the main outline? You know, what's the main point before and after the book? You know, thing. what did he just say? Where is he going next? Notice those key words, Remember? Discern the literary genre. Is it prophets? We're going to talk about how to do that next week and the next week after that. Discern the sentence structure sometimes, not all the time. But if it's, a, if it's a, like an epistle sometimes or a highly logical thing, you want to do a, have you ever done a word, how many did a word study in seventh grade or whenever? I mean, not a word, say a sentence flow or a sentence diagram. Anybody remember that? Bring that back a little bit and kind of in your mind, let me see what's happening here. Notice particularly the transition words in the, the clauses, and the way the clauses stack up. What's the main clause? What's the, you no, know, sometimes, but this is where it's an art. Sometimes, I've noticed, particularly in Paul, it's not the main clause that's the main point. It's actually the supporting clause that's the main point. But you've got to read that because the context will tell you that. It's an art. Don't be frustrated. Again, or go buy a commentary and read it, and hopefully it's a good commentary. (laughs) And you can do fine. Um, Discern the redemptive historical covenantal context. We talked about that all last week. Always first, relate the text to its immediate context. How would this be interpreted under the mosaic geopolitical expectations? Come tonight, you'll see a little bit of that. Um, Step two is I got to relate it to, to Christ and to the New Testament. How does this translate into a New Testament context? Step whatever we are, discern main point in confessional context. Now this is important. You're not reading that we talked about this before. Confessionalism. Remember, we're not reading the Bible as by ourselves individually. We're reading it with our family, the Church of Jesus Christ for two thousand years. So now you want to read. You want to find what do you find is the main? What's this passage really about? And then locate that categorically. Locate what it's about in. A confession of faith that you know is an orthodox confession of faith. And ask yourself, what does the Bible generally teach about this topic? What are the parameters, the God rails? Am I I going off the reservation? Because it's very easy to do that in a particular text until you compare this particular text to the rest of the scripture. And the best way you're going to get at that is not by reading the whole Bible right then. It's going to your church who's been reading the whole Bible together for 2,000 years and have put into a confession the major categories of what we believe as to what the scriptures principally or generally teaches about a topic and it'll give you some some guide so if this word justification in paul well let me see what the scriptures generally teach about justification and that's what it means to interpret scripture with scripture But you're using your church family to help you know that. Because there's been thousands and thousands and thousands and probably billions of hours of young seminarians and church leaders going to councils trying to understand what Paul means by justification through a study of the scripture. You might as well take advantage of all that. They put it into a nice little pithy paragraph for you. It's amazing. I mean, literally, one paragraph in your Westminster Confession of Faith, I'm I'm merely not exaggerating, billions of hours accumulated. Billions. Studying over it again, comparing scripture to scripture, when you take it collectively. It's a great friend. That step, whatever it is. <laughs> then you, I'm running out of time and I got to get up there, right? Yep. Okay, I got to stop. Um, the me- the, then you discern related significance. That's your take home. Then you discern meaning of significant words. Uh-oh, maybe that was supposed to be back in the word study. That, that's out of method. That's up there somewhere right after, do the, do the literary, remember the sentence flow, this is a word study. I got to get it in the right place. Um, a basic, a warning of, about word studies, these are the two things that are going up. Do not do wort, root word studies. Repeat after me. Do not do r- root word studies. That is one of the great fallacies that I hear untrained people do say all the time. The root word means nothing in a semantic range. you got to, it might mean a little bit, okay? Here's a couple of words that put this together. But you've got to look at the way that Paul uses it in his day. And that's where it's scripture with scripture. Um, theme comparison, we've talked about that a little bit. Um, uh, further reading.
0: All right. Thank you for listening to the School of Discipleship. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you like the show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org. Until next time, this is CPC Podcasts.